0: Good morning, Bethany. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 1, and we are going to begin uh, in verse 39 through 56. This is an absolutely beautiful passage. I, I just really enjoyed reading it and you know, practicing it to, to read before you. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of the baby, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In response, Mary sang a song of praise. And she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Pam. We continue this morning in this Advent series or Advent portion of our larger Luke series that's entitled The Gospel of Luke, Things Accomplished Among Us. That was what Luke said in his purpose statement to Theophilus. This is a book about things that have been done, actually happened, accomplished by Christ among us. And I want to begin this morning with a question for you. A question first for those of you who have trusted Christ. Do you ever pause or have enough space in life to pause and just marvel and wonder at the fact that you have trusted Christ? Christ. You personally. I mean, do you ever pause and think? It's 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 incredible how God used my life or the people in my life and his word and circumstances, the fact that he has come into your life. Or say, it's just incredible how God has changed my life and in ways I never could imagine. I think it's in our human nature to tend to drift towards maybe forgetting that or not pondering that enough, or reminding and remembering in our own lives that salvation is of grace, that we didn't earn it, and it came to us, something that came, happened to us, not even something many of us even feel like we necessarily sought out, not something that we really decided, but something even outside us that came to us in our life. And this realization today, this morning, for both Elizabeth and Mary completely turned upside down their lives as they realized what was happening. They had never experienced anything like this before, but every true Christian knows a bit of, at least something, of what they speak about today. God had come to them. He had initiated with them. Salvation had come to them and they were totally changed and transformed by this. And they speak an incredible prophetic word by words by the power of the spirit this morning in this passage, as they were astonished, they were amazed, they marveled and wondered at the incredible things that were happening to both of them now. Family members, Elizabeth and Mary, miraculous births. Thousands-year-old prophecies coming true, not only in their lifetimes, but through their lives and in their wombs. That's what was happening. This morning, we're going to look at the meeting of two heart-soul sisters, you could call them, each with their own joyful prophetic word about the meaning of Christmas. And not only the meaning of Christmas, but the state of a soul that trusts Christ, the state of a person who receives Jesus as the son of god. So let's look this morning at the story of Christmas. We're going to look first in the greeting of two soul sisters, so we too can be changed and rejoice in soul and spirit as Mary says. We're going to pull out four different truths today. So if you got your outline there, we got a half sheet for you today on both sides and have your scripture open to Luke chapter 1 as we're going to look at these four truths in this passage. The first one we see in the initial five verses is that Christmas is so much more than a sentimental story. It is a revolutionary story. It's so much more than something sentimental. It's radical, revolutionary. As you look at this exchange between Mary and Elizabeth, you think about some of the incredible things that happen. As Mary is just a few days now, She's only a few days from hearing about her own pregnancy from the angel Gabriel. So she's about three days pregnant. That's it. And she's only, remember, about 12 to 15 year, years old, according to cultural standards at that time, for, uh, or cultural practices, I should say. And she takes this 80-mile journey to see her relative Elizabeth, who is at the total other opposite end of the spectrum of life. Remember, Elizabeth was barren, uh, and she too has received news from Gabriel of a miraculous birth, and her baby was now about six-month-old in gestation at that time. It's an incredible situation. And verse 39 tells us that Mary arose and she went with haste, showing this an immediate obedience on her part to go and check out this sign, check out uh, her, her family member, Elizabeth, to see is she really pregnant, to, to go check it out for herself. Gabriel told her this, and a few days later, she's there at their doorstep. Have you ever traveled to a place and you just couldn't wait to get there, whether it was uh, you know, a honeymoon or a big trip uh, out, outside the United States or off to Hawaii or something, and you just couldn't wait to get there? That anticipation or how about back in the day, excuse me, when loved ones could wait for you in the airport and you could come off the terminal tunnel when you deplaned, and you were waiting and you knew they were going to be there and they knew you were coming and that expectation you felt to get there, that part of the journey, the anticipation of seeing someone. Or we gone on a road trip and had your kids in the back seat. What do they say? Are we there yet? You guys got that good this morning. Nobody's ever heard that line, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, Mary, think about it. She was a tad older than a child herself, and the expectation she must have been feeling to go and see, is Elizabeth really pregnant? Probably rivals that kind of expectation that we just talked about. She was filled with great excitement to see her aging relative. And imagine the situation. She arrives there uh, in the doorstep, unannounced probably, and she walks in the doorway. And the two women now were not only family members, but spiritual mothers now of the promises together. Their wombs were filled with eternity in Mary's case and the mission in the other one, Elizabeth's case, Jesus and John the Baptist. These two were not only connected through biology now, but also through theology now, and now they were the center of God's redemptive plan for the world. These two women, the center of God's working out of thousands of years of history and plan, is centered now in these two wombs. It's an incredible story. Soul sisters were calling them, who, when they meet, they can barely contain themselves, so they, they break out in song. So that they do break out in song is really appropriate actually for both of them because they can barely contain their excitement in this moment. You know, we can tend to sentimentalize Christmas as our first point says, and it's fun to do that in some ways. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, right? Sleigh rides in the snow. All the Christmas villages and decorations that go with it. But I don't think it's a sentimental story that makes that fetus, a baby, in the womb still, jump, is what the text says. Look at verse 41 with me. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby leapt, jumped, and the word used there... Is like uh, more uh, is like akin to used uh, with uh, sheep skipping or jumping in a field. This wasn't like uh, as I remember Robin describing the first time she felt a baby move. Felt like a little goldfish swimming in her tummy. No, this was more akin to like pole vaulting. <laughs> That's what we're getting at here. This is a jump in her in her stomach in her womb. It's a big deal. This isn't a sentimental sweet story about a jolly man coming down your chimney. This is nothing more than a revolution of the son of God, Jesus, being only three days old, probably 16 cells large, coming into that room, entering the room in Mary, his mother's womb. And a prophet, John, who at this point is probably only 12 inches long and one and a half pounds, making his first prophecy. He's prophesying in the womb. He's pole vaulting in the womb. Not only do we have a great argument here for the personhood of a fetus, of a baby, of John here. We've got a great argument for that. But this is also a supernatural revolution. Nothing but the Spirit of God descending into that womb, giving a six-month gestated baby the ability to leap and jump at joy. And Elizabeth, as she prophesies, Nothing but the Spirit of God descending could bring these things about. This is radical. It's incredible. And Elizabeth and Mary know it. They know, they're starting to get it a little more, they're at the center of history now. The center of God's working in the world. This was John the Baptist's ministry. This is what he was gonna do. Prophesy. And and beginning, he was just beginning this early, and he carried it out to fruition for 30 years later, we see, is that he compares his prophetic pole vaulting joy at announcing Christ to a friend of the groom on his wedding day when he said this in the Gospel of John, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's talking about Jesus there. The friend of the bridegroom, that's him, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. But I must decrease. John began that in the womb, this prophetic voice, and he completed it here 30 years later as he talks about the voice of hearing, or hearing the voice again of the Savior and the joy it brings him. But when you realize that something like the power of God is happening to these two women, that happened to John the Baptist, when you realize that something like that has come into your life undeserved, unsought for, unsolicited, what is the natural response? We see it here in John. Humility. Humility. He must increase. He must, de- I must, de- excuse me, he must de- increase. I must decrease. Much like his mother who says, look at verse 43 with me. His mother says something similar. She says, and why, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. For behold, it's amazing. She says, I can't believe it. It's incredible. Can you hear the humble posture in her voice? I don't deserve this. How is this possible? My baby, your baby, oh, my baby, yikes, he just jumped. How is this possible? And now, why why have I been granted to receive the mother of my Lord, she says? Elizabeth is the first human to really claim that Jesus is Messiah, Lord. You see, the gospel comes to people like Elizabeth. The gospel comes to people who are humble, those who know they don't deserve it, those who know they didn't earn it. Elizabeth says, why has this been granted to me, of all people, to be able to meet the mother of my Lord? I mean, think about this. Who told, who told Elizabeth that this Jesus was Lord? Who told her Mary had believed As she says in verse 45, she says, Blessed is he she who believed all the prophecies of the angel. Who told her these things? How does she even know these things? Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had come upon her and fills her here, Luke records. How else do those who are prone like you and I are to sentimentalize Christmas? How else do we reclaim it and recapture the radical nature of what happened? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. As it did for Elizabeth and Mary here. How else do dead sinners become alive to the revolutionary story of Christmas and say, as Elizabeth did, Jesus is Lord? How else does that happen without the Spirit of God giving you this gift? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, which is what Elizabeth Elizabeth said. No one can say this except in the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle. Like Elizabeth, may we be people who stand up in joy and say, believe God's plan. Mary, you're blessed. You're believing it. There's blessing in believing. Believe and you will be blessed. Believe and here's what will happen. Christmas will turn your life upside down like it did for these two ladies. She can't contain herself, Elizabeth, here, and she calls Mary blessed uh, three times here in her short little song. She just says, blessed are you among women, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Mary. And you, Mary, are blessed because you believed it. Blessed. Thinking back to Mary now, switching gears a little bit, how do you think she received those words from Elizabeth? Elizabeth. How do you think they impacted her heart in that moment? How do you think uh, she was really engaged in that moment? What I think we've got here is a wonderful picture of our need for Christian community. Remember from last week, Mary is a nowhere girl from a nowhere town, an unwed teenage mother, who's been given the responsibility to carry eternity in flesh, God in flesh in her body. And God's plan, as we saw last week, they were absolutely confusing to Mary. We know that from last week's passage. We saw that she could not have fully understood the full weight of what she'd been asked to do. Remember, she's an adolescent, a little more than a child. But God, in his good kindness, he gave her Elizabeth. Like he's given each and every one of us each other. Those sitting next to us in these chairs. He gave Mary someone in her life to come alongside and encourage her. That's what she got. God's plans were confusing. What did she need? It's the same thing you and I need from others in the church. Encouragement. We need encouragement. And she comes and encourages her. We finished that with Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. Remember, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Elizabeth comes, you're blessed. You're blessed. God is working. You're blessed. The fruit of your womb, you're blessed. You believed. She needed, Mary did, an older woman to come alongside her and to say to her, God has got this. God is working through you, you are blessed, you have the Messiah in you, Mary. She needed someone to come alongside her and champion and cheer her on. She was a 13, 14-year-old girl, unwed, who'd just seen an angel. (laughs) Think about that. And we can say similar words to each other when life overwhelms us, God's confusing plans. Maybe not the virgin part, but we can say the other stuff to each other. Remember who you are. You're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. God has got this. God is working through you. And you have the spirit of God in you, right? See, Elizabeth had already been through tough stuff of life. Elizabeth had already gone through the morning sickness, right? So she could help Mary with hers, literally and figuratively. She'd gone through it. She'd been there. Some of you I know who, like Elizabeth, are aged, aging, maybe feel like you don't have a purpose anymore. You ever feel that? Like you just kind of, you know, used to feel like it's so much purpose in life, so much to do, so much ahead of you still, and now there's much more behind you than ahead, and the tendency can be for maybe you to feel like you just don't have purpose anymore, don't you see it here in this story? You older saints, we who are younger or are younger than me, we need you. Mary needed Elizabeth. We need you to be here. We need your story. We need your wisdom. We need your experience. We need your love for Jesus Messiah to be passed to us as Elizabeth did to Mary. Mary, you're blessed. Don't forget it. You're blessed as we share in this revolutionary story together, we need each other. And Elizabeth and Mary point us to that. If any one of us in this room thinks they can go it alone in the Christian life and doesn't need the local church, I mean really invest in the community and be all in and and be known and, and know others, you're fooling yourself. There is no magical me and Jesus land in God's kingdom. It's just not a thing. It doesn't exist. It's always people like Elizabeth to Mary encouraging her, you're blessed, don't forget it. Even though you're totally confused right now, Mary, I know, you're blessed. God is with you. We need you, older saints. We need each other as we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot survive the life of a disciple alone. Mary needed Elizabeth, we need each other, so that we don't slip into sentimentalizing Christmas, but still living under the radical, revolutionary claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Mary, it works. (laughs) She responds with encouragement. Let's look at her song. Let's look at the song of Mary now that we've seen the greeting between these two women Let's look at Mary's song. It's wonderful, beautiful. And think about the reality of a 14-year-old Mary finding out three days prior about this incredible, scary, confusing pregnancy, and just three days later, she speaks and says one of those beautiful songs ever written. And claiming that she too, she had been revolutionized. She'd been transformed to the core, she says, my soul and spirit. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in me. She says soul and spirit. It's a double emphasis on the depths of transformation that had taken place in her heart in these last few days. That's why she's a model too of belief and faith for us and what it means to be a Christian. She stands in the face of impossible odds and incredible circumstances because she knows she's growing the Messiah in her womb. Now, she doesn't, of course, know the extent of what that means, but do you see verse 48? What brings about the change? Look at her. She says in verse 48, she says, for, and that's an important word, why am I magnifying? Why is my soul? Why is my spirit rejoicing? For verse forty-eight, he or excuse me, for, uh, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For it's such a small word, word there, but it shows us she knows she knows how and why to compose this song. She knows the notes well enough to sing them now. And what are they? They are truths, truths of the Christian message. And I want you to see them in the second half this morning here today. So let's look at three more truths in Mary's song now. Mary's Magnificat, it's called, Latin word for magnify. And like Gabriel said to Mary, if you know these truths and if you grasp them and take them in like she did, remember what Gabriel said, nothing will be impossible With God. Nothing. Don't you want that song sung over you and you singing it in your heart? I do. I want it for you too. Let's look at a few of these truths in Mary's song. Here's the first one it's the truth number two. Mary sings first about who God is, first. Who God is. See, Mary realizes things about God experientially in her soul at this point and in her spirit she says that things that we may or maybe you only maybe intellectually assent to there's a difference there's a difference between just intellectually assenting to something as truth and experiencing it like Mary said my soul my spirit magnifies the lord they're they're different they're related but they are different she says i see these things here they are his might his holiness and his mercy. Look at 48 there 50 of me again. I'm actually going we'll to pick up in 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. There's the three. Might, holiness, and mercy. First, might. She says, the mighty one has done great things for me. It's who he is. It's who God is. He's mighty. He's strong. How does she know this? How does she know that God is mighty? Well, she knows this as a good Jewish woman, intellectually. God's powerful, I know it. Our people have always talked about it. But to believe that God could become human? That's the last thing a good Jew would ever think could possibly happen. No way, not as a good Jew. But that is the very place his might is showcased for Mary, in the incredible virgin birth. Looking back up at our story Remember, if you have your scripture open, you look back up at it. Gabriel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will have a baby. Now, Mary knows biology, and she responds, well, how will this be? I know biology. I'm a virgin. She's really wanting to know. But it's at the same time, she's also saying, this is kind of impossible. This sounds really confusing, but she'd grown up as a good Jew, so she knows all things are possible with God, at least in her head. She knows it, that all things are possible. But in her heart, in that moment with Gabriel, in the day to day living of her life, she's not practically living that out. She's not functionally living that out. She can't grasp it. Oh, how can this be? Aren't you the same? Aren't you the same? We pay lip service to God's might. Wait, what? A virgin birth? For me? And why are you even talking to someone like me, Mary says? So humble. Mary had trouble believing God on some level, and Gabriel had to say, you forget God is mighty. You forget God is strong. You say you believe it, but Mary, you have to sing it, so you've got to know it experientially too. You say it, but you've got to sing it, Mary. With God, all things are possible, Mary. Maybe you're here today, and you believe in God, but you kind of struggle with some of the radical claims of this birth, of Jesus, his birth, the radical stories about his birth, a virgin birth, and his death and his resurrection. Well, if you believe even just in God you must say it's at least possible he could have the power to do these things. Like Mary, you might be saying, well, yeah, I believe in God, but that he's mighty? That he could do things like this? You limit God if you do that. You're believing it, maybe. Oh, yeah, okay, I believe in God. Maybe he's mighty, but you're not singing it like Mary did. You're not experiencing it, his might. You believe in it, but you're not seeing it. Or maybe you find yourself bitter at God right now. That could be you today. You're going through a lot. Yeah, I believe God is mighty, but you just can't get over your anger or your disappointment with God or your frustrations with God and your hopelessness that you feel. Is he mighty enough that he will someday bring to us something so good that you will look back on what you're going through right now and say, I would go through it a hundred times more to get what I have today. You have to sing it too. You can't just say it. You believe in it, but you're not singing it. He's mighty. All things are possible with him. Now, I'm not saying it's hard, not hard to do. It's not easy to sing it a lot of days, isn't it? It's not, it's hard. It's hard. We have to just not believe it, but sing it like Mary did. Or how about those of us who look at ourselves and we're just so critical? How many of you tend to be just self-critical? That voice that runs through your head, you know what it says, right? The self-loathing voice that says, I'm so stupid. Why do people even like me? I never changed. This isn't gonna work out. It never does for me. Or how about one of those unchristian phrases, maybe one of the most unchristian phrases that we haven't quite realized, but it's slipped into everyone's vocabulary and we all use it. It just is what it is. How many of us say that? It is what it is. No. God is mighty, Mary says. That means nothing, nothing ever just is what it is. Nothing. Nothing ever just is what it is. Nothing is impossible with God. God. You're believing it, but you're not singing it. It's God who is mighty. Next, he's holy. Might, holy. Holiness, verse 49. Now, Mary didn't know the extent of the cross for Jesus. Obviously, she couldn't, right? She didn't know all the future. She could not have quite understood the cross yet and all that that would entail. But she does know God is holy. She does know that. So him coming to earth as a baby, as Jesus, he must be coming some way to deal with sin if God is holy. Have you noticed over the years how, whether it's the media you take or the entertainment we watch, how we've become more and more desensitized to what we are kind of willing to watch and listen to in entertainment? Have you noticed that? And if we played half the stuff we play, on TV, on even network television, or things we stream 30 years ago. I mean, it wouldn't even fly, a lot of it. It just wouldn't even play. And I'm just talking about Christians would be like kind of offended. i mean, just the general public would be like, yeah, that's not really appropriate. We've just become desensitized, haven't we, to sin and evil and just things that we see. It doesn't really bother us anymore, actually. It becomes normalized or we become desensitized. Not so with God. He doesn't go through the process that we've gone through in our culture in the last 40 years. Not so with God. Sin always remains like a cancer to him, like an acid to him. It always remains that way. He doesn't ever become desensitized to it. It's kind of part of what holiness is. Do you know God like this? Holy, holy. So holy that Christmas was necessary because of your sin and God's holiness. That's why it absolutely had to happen. Because of my sin and my guilt, Jesus, who would look at the world like a speck because he's so magnificent, had to become a speck to make you a child of God, to deal with sin. A one cell baby he became. It's who God is, he's holy. But merciful too, verse 50 says, merciful as well. All three of these, holy, might, and mercy come together in this baby at Christmas. All three of them. How? Because he's merciful, he wants to do something about our sin. He's merciful. Because he's holy, he has to do something about it. He can't just turn a blind eye to sin. But because he's mighty, he can actually do something about it. All three of those have to be there. They all have to be there. You've heard seen in the news all the stories, Elon Musk recently purchasing Twitter, right? Over the last couple months, this man, I think he's the richest man in the world, right? Elon Musk is, I think. He's powerful. He's got power. He's got might. He owns the company now. And this past couple of months, this holiday season, he's let a bunch of what he's maybe called incompetent, People go. Companies may be losing money and falling apart. And he lets some of the go. He bought the company and looked at it and thought, we don't need half the people here. They're incompetent. And fired some and lets some go and cuts them out. And he's getting new people in there. There's some power in owning a business. He kind of has the right to do it. He owns it. And maybe, I don't know, I'm not a business guy, but maybe it's even a smart business move. But you wouldn't probably call it merciful, right? We probably wouldn't say that. It might be right. It might be okay. It's okay. He's got the power to do it. He owns the business. And it might be a smart business move. But we probably wouldn't call it merciful. Now imagine God looking at the earth. It's his. He made it. He owns it. He manages it. You can imagine him looking at us here and people saying, looking and going, wow, All these people I put in charge to manage the place, look how incompetent they all are, right? It's my place. It's my business. I owned it. I made it, right? They're incompetent at at best. And he's holy. He has the right to do it. He made it. He owns it. It's his right. Can he do it? Sure. Also, he's all-powerful. But he's also merciful. He is full of mercy. If he was just might and holiness, he would have pulled an Elon Musk on us, right? Fired us all, gotten rid of us all, cut us off right at the beginning. Wow. He didn't, Mary says. You have mercy on those who fear you, she said. In other words, those who know who you really are as you really are, mighty, holy, and merciful. Might, holy, and mercy. You know, you might know these things, but do you sing them like Mary does? Do you experience them? Can you say in soul, in soul, in spirit, I sing it? It's who God is, our second truth. Next, Mary sings what God has done. So first thing she sings is who God is. Then she goes on to what God. God has done. Let's look at that. She goes in, uh, in verses 51 to 52, it's real personal, what God has done for me, but now she kind of goes public. Now she takes the second half of her song, it's to the general world. While he's done great things for me personally, he's also working in the world. Strength with his arm, the verses say. Scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty of the world leaders from their thrones and exalting those who are humble and filling the hungry and sending the rich away. All words from her song. What's she saying there? She's saying that not only has he worked in my private life, but God in this baby in my womb is publicly working too. Christianity is not just a private religion. It can't be. Jesus' coming is not private. It's not a private faith. It never can be. It has to be public. And that's probably one of the reasons it's one of the most uh, despised religions in the world by others. It's public. It's out there. It has to be. God is doing something in the world. Quoting just a paraphrase of a guy I was reading this week. He said, and this is my paraphrase of it, in Jesus, God's future came forward into our present moment. There's history, right? Not just the private life of Mary, the world. And he invites us to imagine in his coming Jesus, the real world, capital R, capital W. And in Jesus, what he's doing is drawing our imaginations forward with him to that real world, even though it appears really hard to believe in during really hard times of life. This real world is the one where The humble, the poor, the hungry are the blessed ones. And the powerful and the rich are cast out in Mary's words. And Mary says Did you catch when Pam was reading it today? How many times she says, He has done, He has done, He has done all these things. He's working in history. He's changing the nature of the entire world, is what Mary is saying in this second half of the song. It's not just private, it's public for everyone. And history, as we know it, is being changed by this baby in my womb. Powerful will be brought down, the humble will be lifted. He's turning it upside down. That's why in this passage we get a couple of the first, they sound like Beatitudes, don't they? Did anybody kind of hear that? Blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Why? Because Jesus is coming for them. He's transforming the world. She's saying, has done, has done, has done these things over and over again. And he was still a baby in the womb. He hadn't fully done those things. Why is she saying it like that? She's saying he has done these things because they are so certain that they will happen in Jesus, through Jesus, that we can speak of them, Mary can sing of them as if they already had happened. He has done this. Do you see why we can't only sentimentalize Christmas? You just can't. He brought down rulers, she's saying. He saved the humble. Think about when Mary says this. Has he brought down a lot of rulers yet? I think the Jews were being occupied and and oppressed by Rome at this time when she sings this. And yet she still says he has brought down the mighty. I, I mean, everything was going wrong for the Jews at this time in their history. And yet she claims God is changing the world through this baby. In Jesus, it's what he is doing. And think of our world right now. Things don't look so great, do they? They really don't. Probably it's not, we might say, we tend to say it's the worst time it's ever been, but we don't know that for sure. There's been a lot of bad times on earth. But things are not so great right now. Leaders coming and going, kind of the liberal, illiberal spirit that's taking over in the West. Many predict dark days for the church. But guess what? God is the outside of time. He sees it all at once. And Mary's claiming even before it happened in her life, He has done it. He has done it. He has done it. We can't put claims on His timing. What he wants to do is draw our imagination to that world that is coming. Can you sing in such a way because Christ is resurrected knowing that this world will come? It will be put right one day. Because it's certain. Can you sing as if it's already here? It's what God is doing. So who he is. And we said what he's doing. And finally Mary sings the gospel at Christmas. As I said these verses remind us of some of the beatitudes or I guess maybe they ant- anticipate the beatitudes because Jesus is only about 16 cells big at this time so he hasn't really spoken too much yet. So they anticipate the beatitudes and she, she essentially closes this passage by saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who know they are spiritually poor. Blessed who know are those who know they are spiritually hungry and need something outside themselves to fill them up, to make them whole, to put them right, to turn it upside down. Blessed are those. You know, most of the messages of our day are messages of self-help, self-power, self-actualization, self-promotion, self-self-self-self-desires, we live in an era of self, self-centered. And Mary is saying here that God doesn't work with people who think and believe like that. It just doesn't. Christmas, if anything, while radical and revolutionary, is also very humble. And that's what she closes with. God working with nobodies. From nowhere, And he himself becomes a nobody to make you and I somebodies in his kingdom. That's what he does. He comes to those who know they need a savior. Blessed, Mary says, are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek. Mary's saying here, actually, the more you have, whether it be money, power, education, she's saying it looks the more unlikely that you're going to accept this message that's coming from this baby in my womb. That's why the poor and outcast and the underprivileged have always flocked to Jesus' message. So why Christians have historically served the poor and the outcast. They see their need. She's singing the gospel to close her song. In some ways, to become a Christian, you have to think like a poor, humble person. I don't have it. I don't have what it takes. You have to be poor and hungry. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Mary sings the gospel. So this Christmas, I pray, I hope that you and I, like Mary in her song, that we can sing it and not just believe it and know it, but sing it about who God is. Not just kind of understand what he's done, but oh, sing what he's done. And how he did it in Christ, the baby in the manger. It's good we get to sing to close the service today. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this incredible story, this radical story of Christmas that turned the world upside down, first in these two women's lives, but also in ours, in our hearts, but also the world publicly. This is not a private faith. It never can be. It never was meant to be. It's for the world. So may you use us in our small corner, to sing the truths of Jesus, to sing the message of Jesus, to sing the gospel as Mary herself did. May we be those who are humble in spirit, poor in spirit, so that we too can show the Jesus who became a nobody so we could be somebodies. The forgiveness he grants us at his cross. In Christ's name we pray, amen.